0: This past uh, Thursday Jason Miller and I uh, went and grabbed lunch and as we're as we're eating lunch together uh, we we began to talk about the fact that it was the 81st anniversary of Pearl Harbor uh, the bomb the bombing of, of Pearl Harbor and in light of last week's uh, sermon we we're talking about unworthiness and um, yeah, honor and heroes he began to tell me a story about a navigator if you know Jason Miller you know his his dad's a navigator. They've, um, uh, you know, whole whole life has been in the navigators ministry, and and so he began to tell me the story that navigators on the day of Pearl Harbor um, almost took a very drastic turn. There was a uh, one of the one of the navigators, that, uh, part of this organization. His name is Jim Downing. He was navigator number six. So. Uh, from, from uh, Mr. Dawson, the guy who started Navigators. Uh, this was the sixth person who he had personally discipled and was, was leading. And uh, he was in the Navy, and he was stationed there in Pearl Harbor. He had uh, multiple Bible studies going on, and he had started this Navig- Navigators uh, ministry there in, in Hawaii. And while the others were in California, this is like this branch starting to go on the naval base there in Hawaii. And so he leaves uh, Pearl Harbor on leave that weekend, and he goes about 30, 45 minutes from base and is there having a Bible study when all of a sudden they feel the ground start shaking. And uh, they quickly realize, they turn on the radio, they realize, hey, this is what's happening, we're being bombed. And in a journal, uh, Jim uh, Jim Downing is described as um, somewhat of the thoughts that he must be feeling on the way back to go and discover what has happened. Was it his ship? Are his shipmen okay? Are his friends okay? Are the guys that he's discipling are, are okay? And, and he gets back there and he finds the place in ruins. And you can read about some navigators and their really heroic efforts uh, to go and to do what, what all of our servicemen were doing in that moment as they were scrambling uh, to rescue those who had, who, had been, you know, who had been a part of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. When you read this story, what you, what, what you quickly realize... Is that he could have easily been struck with survivor's guilt? There, there, there's, there's something that happens to us when we have um, come to a place where where something could have happened to us, something bad could have happened to us, but yet it doesn't. And it's often known as survivor, survivor's guilt. And and he could have had that, but rather he didn't. He took he took and trusted the Lord. Um, referenced God's sovereignty in the scriptures, and uh, continued his ministry. And for the next six months, under an air raid shelter, he continued uh, his ministry to make disciples through navigators. I was inspired by that story, and and as I, I read this week's text, I thought, man, the big truth of this text is just highlighted in Jim Downing's story. And here's the big truth. Salvation from our dire situation should result in a life of worship and gratitude to God. Our text today is going to be in Luke chapter uh, 17. We're going to be continuing right where we left off last week. We're going to start in verse 11. And if you remember, recall last week, it seemed like there were four stories uh, that may not be separate. But they, they definitely had a theme. And we could look at that by the end and we could go, man, this is what God is doing well, today's passage is a continu- continuation in Luke's storytelling uh, to continue us down this path uh, towards Jerusalem and a path towards salvation. So starting in verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Jesus. Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise of God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, let's, let's go back up to verse 11. And let's start back into this story now that we've read it, read it through once. And let's, let's begin to get the details of this story. And so, on the way to Jerusalem... And so we see this, we see this turn in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke where you see Jesus's ministry in these outlying communities, and all of a sudden Luke starts to turn it towards Jerusalem. And he, and he does this three times. We see three times in the Gospel of Luke where he continue, he, he's bringing us towards Jerusalem and we, he shows us Jesus' ministry and he brings us towards Jerusalem and he shows us Jesus' ministry. There's a very good chance that this particular story isn't in like a chronological order. It's just it's a result of what Luke is doing in storytelling, and he's trying to highlight it here in uh, this moment. And so, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So we know that Jesus has done uh, ministry in this area. It's been happening, and this is important to note: it's between Samaria and Galilee, and. Really good Jews, really good Pharisees would not have gone through this region. Uh, what what we know is that the the Jewish the, the Pharisees had a very strong disdain. I would even call it a hate uh, for the Samaritans and uh, and Samaria. And the, and so that's like when you hear the story of good the Good Samaritan. That's why it's like that's wild. There's such thing as a Good Samaritan. Um, and so. Here Jesus is in in this place that the, the Pharisees they consider them half-breeds, they consider them dogs, they 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 don't like them. You've got this people who are uh, have somewhat of an Israelite background mixed in with a, a Gentile background, and they have they have their own version of the Torah and they, they worship God, but they think that they miss miss how they worship God, and they do. And so there's a lot of hate. And so this is the area that he's in. And As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers. Now, this is what we know about lepers. Um, Lepers had some sort of skin disease. And this may, may, uh, may very well not have been leprosy as we know leprosy today. They didn't have the ability to necessarily diagnose it with that same level of accuracy. But we know that with leprosy... Their skin was deteriorating. It was falling off. They would have open wounds, sores, your, their face sunken in. It's, it's something to behold. By the way, leprosy still exists. There's still leprosy camps in, in the world. But you've got to think this is somebody who visibly, you could tell, had something wrong with them. And they called it leprosy. So their skin is, is, is falling off. And so there's ten lepers who stood at a distance. They had to be... Staying at a distance, they couldn't become like you think about a normal uh, a normal beggar. Uh, they would they could be right there at the city gates. You could walk by them, but the leper, because they were scared that they would uh, give give the you know give them some sort of virus just by touching them or whatever else that you know by exposure to them they could get the virus. They had to stay at a distance. And so here are these ten lepers, and this is what they do. It is that they lift up their voices, saying, "Jesus, Master." Have mercy on us. And so here's my first big idea. Is before we can have salvation, we must recognize our dire situation. Old Testament law taught them, put forth in practice these guidelines for when somebody had leprosy. You can go back to the book of Leviticus. You can see it in Deuteronomy chapter 14, I believe. And, and you had to call out and let others know, unclean, unclean. You had, to, you had to say that pronouncement of those words. I'm unclean. I'm unclean. And so in, in the pronouncement of those words, like there had to be a reality to your situation. It's not, not enough to look on your skin and see that you're unclean, but Also, you're saying it within within who you are. You're announcing it in your spirit. Unclean, unclean, unclean. They knew. They understood their reality. Now, so often in life, when there is some sort of outward physical condition, it, it makes us aware of our reality. It makes us Aware of our dire situation. When you feel uh, pain in your, when, when, in your body. When you are sick. When you feel your physical limitation. It just makes you keenly aware of your dire situation. But here's the, the bigger problem. Is our inward spiritual condition. Because we can feel really great on the inside. And, and not understand that we are decaying and rotting. Right? We, we talked a few weeks ago about what it means to be a, white, a whitewashed tomb, that language that, that Jesus used. It, it, it's like this, you look good on the outside, but you're dead and decaying on the inside. Last week, our big truth was this. Christians are unworthy servants that are loved by a worthy master. That's what we could, we could pull away from that text last week as we read the, the story of these unworth, this parable of these unworthy servants. that In their unworthiness, they realize that there is a wor- worthy Savior. That we look and go, yeah, we are worthy, but there is a, wor- a worthy Savior. Some of you who, who hear me preach very often and hear, hear me read and expound the Bible, you go, why do you always heart? On our spiritual condition. Why do you harp on our sin? Why why must you always say you're a sinner? Why don't you say uplifting, encouraging stuff? Well, I think I do. For one, like I always get there, but there has to be this reality. We have to we have to understand our spiritual condition and and the need of it. Uh, this goes back to the story of the rich young rich young ruler. We've talked about wealth as he's gone through through wealth. It's hard for a Uh, A rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard for a healthy man to realize that he's sick on the inside and needs uh, a savior. This is why we must talk about it. And and here's the truth. There's really only two options. It's either total depravity or moral therapeutic deism. Like we either have to embrace the fact that we are totally depraved and in need of a, a savior... Or we're just going. No, um, we're going to have good morals, and uh, we're going to get those from God, and it's going to make us feel good about ourselves. Um, I-, I believe that having you leave here feeling good about yourselves is a path to destruction. I want you to leave here feeling good about Jesus, right? I want you to leave here feeling good about the Savior. Like I want you to see the reality of your dire situation. I want you to be like the the leper who stands and comes at the edge of the village and yells, Jesus, have mercy on us. Right? That's what we need. You may be here today and on the outside feel totally fine. But if you are separated from Christ, if Jesus is not your Lord, I want you to understand you are decaying and rotting on the inside. That is the situation of man, that we are born into this sinful world. And we are sinners. And we have a life of sin. And left to our own devices, we are headed down a path of death and destruction. And it is only one thing that can save us from that our own demise, our own dire situation. So remember these these words. And he lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master... Man, there's something there. Jesus, Master. Jesus, Lord. Jesus, One is, who is in control. Jesus, God. We've heard about this one. We've heard about all that He can do. We've heard about His power. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Verse 14. When He saw them, He said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they, were, as they went, they were cleansed. Here's my next big idea. Is that... God is merciful to those who cry out to Him. Here here they cry out, Have mercy. Master, have mercy. His response is very simple. Go and show yourself to the priests, and as they went, they were cleansed. I'm going to just tell you something you're not going to see in Scripture. You're never going to see in Scripture where someone comes to Jesus and cries out to Him asking for mercy repenting, placing their faith in him when he rejects them. You don't see it. It's not there. Whoa, Zach, you just mentioned the rich young ruler. Yeah, he didn't reject the rich young ruler. He told the rich young ruler what he must do. You must make me master and Lord. Your master and Lord are all these, these things. It's your possessions that you worship. It's your riches. Make me master. Make me Lord. Make me the thing that you worship and follow me. But when somebody came pleading and asking for God's mercy over and over and over, we see them cry out in faith and repentance. And we see these very same words that are at the end of this. Go. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has made you whole. Like, that's Jesus' response over and over and over when someone cries out asking for mercy. And so... You know, you're like, Zach, you're always full of bad news. We're depraved. We're sinners. Yeah, but listen to the good news. That all you have to do is realize, in, in realizing that you can't save yourself, that it's impossible for you to be good enough, for you to live in such a way that is righteous and holy before God, that all you have to do is realize it and cry out and say, God, help me. God, save me. This is the best news, that God is merciful. That He he could very, in a very just way, in a very right way, have wrath on us, give us justice, give us what we deserve. We could get the punishment that we deserve, but rather we see over and over that He doesn't do it. This is verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back praising God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Here's the the next thing that I want, want you to see, the next big idea. That Worship is the right response to salvation. Worship is the right response to salvation. Now, I intentionally, after reading that last text, left a question unanswered. Why did Jesus tell them to go to the priests? Right? That was his response. They cry out for mercy. Other places in Scripture we see Jesus go over and touch them. He doesn't. He says, go, show yourselves to the priest. Now, the instructions that we have in the Old Testament is that if somebody were healed and they no longer had leprosy, uh, the, the, they would have to go to the priest. The priest would examine them which makes me just like, I'm so glad to be a, a pastor in the New Testament and not a priest in the Old Testament, right? Like, I do not want to be a dermatologist. If there's any dermatologists in the room, thank you. We need you. But good night, you know. I don't, like, I don't, I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. I'll pray for it. I don't want to see it. Um, that's, what, that's what the priest had to do. If they were going to be uh, brought back into society, they were going to be able to return home. If they were going to be uh, reconciled back into Saudi, reintroduced to their family, they had to go to show their show, show, show self to the priest. They had to do a ceremonial kind of cleansing to, to, to uh, illustrate, to show, man, God has healed them. And then they had to wait, I think it was seven, seven days before returning home. And so that's what he sends them to do. But you see in this passage, one of them, like they're, they're on their way. They're they're healed of their physical disease. Their leprosy is healed. I can only imagine what that would have looked like, right? You've got these like truly walking, decaying bodies, right? And in our minds it probably looks like, you know, the zombie apocalypse, all of a sudden, like the zombies get reversed and healed, you know? And I can, I can only imagine them as they're limping along. And Jesus does this miracle, ten of them at a time, right? Ten at one time as they, they start their healing. And all of a sudden they're like, we've been healed. Wait, what? I'm sure some of them wanted to take off running. Some of them were like, well, we've got to get to the priest. Can you imagine what they were thinking? Here, here you've got these men who have been on the outcast of society. They haven't been able to touch anybody you know, one of the things that's that's that we, we see if to think about with these ten men, is that they could have they could have been rich, they could have been poor, uh, they they could have been single, they could have had large families. Like it, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Uh, we know that some of them were obviously uh, Jewish, and one of them was a Samaritan. Like their religion didn't matter in that moment, their family didn't matter in that moment, their wealth didn't matter in that moment. The second their skin showed disease, they had to be separated out. And so, all of a sudden, you've got to think, oh, I get to see my daughter. I wonder how old she is now, how, how big she is now. I see, it would have been, how many years ago was that that I got sick? Was it four years? And Oh, man, she was six, so now she'd be ten. I can't imagine what she looks like. I'm, I can't wait to see her. Oh, I wonder if my wife is remarried. Oh, no. That would be a disaster. You know, like what's going through their head? What, think about the joys that they would be feeling as they run to the priest. They want to get it over with. They'd want to get, they want to see them and be pronounced clean and do their ceremonial cleansing and go home. But only one has the right response. One stops and he turns. He turned back. I mean, that's, the, that, that's, that's what it looks like when we repent. We're heading one way and we turn back. And, and just as he cried out with a loud voice saying, Master, have mercy on us, does he cry out in a loud voice and he falls on his feet, falls on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. One gets it right. The nine get it wrong. You know, at our church, we, we often use a definition of, of worship. I, I heard that definition of worship uh, in a sermon uh, by vodi Bakum 20 years ago. And the, the definition goes like this. Worship is taking your mind's attention and your heart's affection and placing it on the Lord for who he is and what he's done. So w- worship isn't just singing. Uh, worship isn't just prayer like it's it's encompassing it encompasses a lot of things when the way that we live a life of worship but but for sure when we are singing when we're corporately gathering when we're corporately singing together what we are doing right is is taking our our eyes off the world and we're putting our eyes on Christ we're putting our minds attention like we're we're focusing on the lord and we're taking our heart's affection, the things that, we're, that, that we have extreme gratitude for and thankfulness for, um, we're, we're condensing that down and we're going to the author of the one who's given us all things, the giver of all good gifts. And so our heart's affection. And we're placing on the Lord for who He is and what He's done. And that's a big statement, who He is. King of kings, Lord of lords, master of... Savior. And what has He done? He's reconciled sinners unto Himself. The the God of the universe has made a solution to our sin by sending His Son Jesus Christ to the earth to live for us this perfect and holy and spotless life. uh, To die for us. To take on the penalty and the sin, our penalty and our sin debt. And he paid the price for our sin, reconciling us to himself. In short, what has he done? He saved us. Right? It's it's salvation. What has God done? He saved his people. And so the redeemed of the Lord need to say so. The redeemed of the Lord respond in worship. Worship is the right response. And so when we say it's taking your mind's attention and your heart's affection and placing it on the Lord for who He is and what He's done, the thing that He's done is, is saved us. He is the Savior. 16b, the very end of verse 16, look at that. Now He was a Samaritan. Here's my next big idea. Is that God so loved the world that he sent us his son. And notice that I have put world in all capital letters. Because one of the things, the main things that we see happening. Is that Luke, Luke in his gospel is starting to communicate to us. That God just did, not just did not just come to save the Israelites. To save the Jewish people. But he came to save the whole world. The Jew and the Gentile alike. And the fact that he's, it's showing, he's showing us yet again, multiple times in Scripture, that, he, that Jesus uses a Samaritan to show the Israelites, it's no longer just about you. I'm, I'm opening up my gospel and salvation to all people. This is, this is me, this is Jesus coming for the nations. And so he's sending his son for everybody. This is good news. God so loved the world. This is John three sixteen, That he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation is for the Gentiles. Salvation is for the Samaritans. Salvation is for you and for me. And this is what we know about God's chosen. That, that God... Chooses who he saves. He chooses that God is sovereign over it. We know that God, that we have the ability and capability to love because he first loved us. And, and there, there are two things that we have to hold in, in balance here and, is that God, when you cry out to mercy, he will save you. And God chose you to do it. And those two things are a beautiful thing. He chose to save this Samaritan man. There have been a ton of other people who would have looked at that that group and they would have based off of merit which one of these lepers should be cleansed, which one shouldn't. Let's put them in order. Let's pray for this one. Let's have some sort of partiality. That Samaritan, he's a low good dog. He doesn't deserve to be healed. And Jesus doesn't do it because they all cried out, He saved them all. And then he asked this question, and Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except the foreigner? Here's my next big idea. Entitled attitudes are the biggest threat to our gospel Gratitude. One of the songs that just crushes me. Over and over and over. You're going to laugh at this. But it's Amazing Grace. You may think like Amazing Grace. That's like the most common hymn. But I don't know that I can sing the lyrics. To Amazing Grace without tearing up. It makes me know. I'm a, a wretch. You saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found. Was blind. But now I see. When, when When I sing those lyrics, it brings up in my soul a gospel gratitude, a gratitude for the goodness of the gospel, the the gratitude for the goodness of Jesus, the good news of the gospel that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. I think generally, we're an ungrateful people. Uh, we we as Americans in our culture in our time, um, I think there's a, a, a level of entitlement that um, is mind blowing. It's mind numbing. You know, I, I, I confessed back at back at Thanksgiving. Like I, I have to. I like Thanksgiving because it, it 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 makes me slow down and be grateful to be thankful. I, I'm, I'm a type, I'm a driven personality, right? And so, uh, to me, it's always about the next thing. It's always the, the push forward. And sometimes I, I, I don't slow down to stop and to 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 give thanks. I don't stop and have time to rejoice. There's a different type of entitlement, though, that I think has prevailed in our culture. It's not just that type. It's a type of where we truly aren't thankful for what we have. We we have more. Like, we, we've... You know, st- statistically speaking, remember, you're all four percenters, right? We're four. Everybody in here is, you know, has m- more wealth than, more security than, you know, 96% of the rest of the world. And we we have things. And, you know, Thanksgiving such a great illustration. We We sit around on Thanksgiving Day, we name what we're thankful for, and then we wake up in the middle of the night on Friday morning, and we go rush through places and elbow each other out to get these Black Friday deals to buy more stuff and to go into to further debt for the very things we think we're thankful for the day before. And so um, we have an entitlement attitude. What has that entitlement attitude done to us spiritually? What does it make us think spiritually? What, what we deserve. Do we, we come to God demanding of God, asking God, why, why me, why not... Them, why did this trial happen to me? Uh, we 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 have um, this idea that that you know some of us we have been told since we were very small that we're perfect and good, and uh, we've been given you know uh, trophies over and over on our upward soccer team. And you lost by fifteen, and here you get a trophy. Uh, we've been told like. Uh, you know, by the way, if that's you, I'm not making fun of you. I'm making fun of your parents. Uh, <laughs> they're the ones that did it. It's not, necess- it's not your fault that you got that trophy. They gave it to you. What were you supposed to do? Reject it as a kid? Like, no, I must dominate before I get a trophy. No, that's not what happens. In our entitled attitude, like, we, start be- we-, we, are- we believe our own hype. We-, we believe that we deserve things when we don't deserve them. We we don't come as the unworthy servant who has a worthy master. We don't come humbly before the Lord. We look around in our culture with all the things that we have and we see an entitled people who are mad, depressed people. Because they think that they deserve more and they compare their lives to others. They have a pity party and it leads us down to depression. Remember last week, I've said this before, that man, science and scientists are always trying to catch up with theology and theologians. Um, I'm going to read you something from the Mayo Clinic website again, two weeks in a row. Expressing gratitude is associated with a host of mental and physical benefits. Studies have shown that feeling thankful can improve sleep, mood, and immunity. Gratitude can decrease decrease depression, anxiety, difficulties with chronic pain, and risk of disease. Being grateful is good for you. Now, here's the problem. You can go to the, the Mayo Clinic and you can be told to be grateful. And being grateful can be good for you. But if you're grateful for the wrong things, you still miss the boat. Right? When we start counting our blessings and we start naming them one by one, there's got to be a hierarchy of those blessings. There has to be a realization that Jesus is the top of that, that God is the giver of all good things, that it's God who has done the work. It's that God who's moving and orchestrating things in there. And listen, you can have an incredibly blessed life. We can preach a health, wealth, and prosperity life, and you can, you can have all the prosperity in the world. You can have the riches of the rich man, but if you do not have Jesus, you do not have what you need. And so, it's easy for us to run to in the moment and think, Well, yeah, because you can be rich and have this great life, and you can die and go to hell. Absolutely. That is a grave danger. But I will tell you, give me rags and rubbish and Jesus and let me live this life. Then have the glories of the world. To have the riches of the world. Give me Jesus. Jesus is better. Joy is found in Jesus. There's there's great Great danger for us when we have this prosperity way of thinking that separates the things we're grateful for away from the gospel. Away from who Jesus is. Because it sets our minds on earthly riches rather than setting our mind on Christ. We're going to talk about healing in a minute. We're going to talk about these guys and how they were healed in a minute. Jonah Erickson Tata is um, a Christian speaker and writer, and she's been paralyzed for over 50 years. If you've ever heard uh, heard her speak, uh, she's an incredible story, incredible testimony of God's faithfulness. And there she is, stuck in a wheelchair. And she says this, she says, The first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. For her, it's not about walking on this earth. It's about that one day she will be ultimately healed in heaven. And she's not thinking, hey, I'm going to get these legs in heaven and I'm going to run on my legs. That's not what she's saying. She says, no, it isn't going to matter. I'm going to drop on these grateful, glorified knees. Look at verse 19. And he said to him... Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, what caused their leprosy to go away? Was it their faith? Was it their faith that made them well? This is a trick question. Scholars are, are really come to this verse um, and, and most of them disagree with this translation of this verse. Um, several other uh, translation scriptures, the CSB being the most prominent one, translate this verse a little differently. They translated this, and he said to them, Rise and go, your faith has saved you. Uh, the same verb that is used for well uh, when it's used in other, other places, it's translated differently. It's translated, well, whole, saved. Rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. It's made you well. Let, let me ask this question. When the other ten leave, the other nine, rather, there's ten that leave, right? Was it that they were all Saved or was it that they were all healed? They were all cleansed, right? They were all cleansed. The other nine were healed. He healed their disease, right? They're healed. But, but what's going to happen to them? And, and, and who, who knows? We know nothing about them, really. Who knows? But what's going to happen to them if they're cured of their earthly leprosy, their earthly skin disease but then reject, reject Jesus and die. They're going to go to hell, right? This is what we know of every healing in the Bible. Everyone who was healed in the Bible ends up what? Dying, right? It's a, it's a delay of their death. And so we want to talk about healing and make healing the main thing. It's like, okay, yeah, healing was important. And what an incredible gift to be healed of their leprosy. But here, uh, this one, the the nine were healed. The Samaritan was saved. It, It is apparent that when Jesus is going to be cleansed, right, he's doing this miracle. It's when they realize it, he runs back and he goes, he really is master. He really is Lord. He really is the one who's worthy of my worship. I'm I'm coming back to him. I'm running back to him. And so here's my last big idea. It is by grace through faith that you are saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus today. This is what we see in Scripture. This is what we see taught in the whole of Scripture. How is one saved? How does one, when they've realized their dire situation... When they realize that they are a sinner in need of a Savior, what, it is, what is it that they must do? The Bible's very clear. It, it tells us that they must repent. They must turn from the ways of the world, turn from their uh, false, uh, false worship of idols, and they must turn back and run to Jesus. They must believe. That it is by grace, God's unmerited favor through faith. That is our belief that Jesus was God's son. That he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. And the Bible's very clear. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised his son from the dead. You will be saved. And so today this is an invitation. come to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus and be saved. If you are saved, if you said, you know what, Zach, I've I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus. I believe the Lord Jesus. The, The Bible tells us that what we need to do is to tell the world, to show the world, hey, I'm a follower of Christ. He's my master. He's my Lord. The way we do that is by baptism. Baptism is is a symbolic expression of our faith. It it is showing that we have died to ourselves, that we're being buried with Jesus in baptism, and we're being raised to walk a new way of life. So if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, your next step is baptism. And if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, and you've been baptized, let me tell you what I, I think you should do. I think you should worship with a heart of gratitude. I think you should live this life of gratitude. That we show up for worship. It is from a place where we take our mind's attention and our heart's affection and we cry out to God. We sing with joyful voices from the innermost parts of our soul. God, you are good. God, you saved. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see. That we would, we would show up and we would worship from a place of gratitude. So Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for this story that you shared with us through Luke, the physician. One who knew all about healing but chose to paint this picture of salvation for us. Lord, I pray that Today you'd save. God, you're the God of salvation. You're a God who saves. And so, Lord, we we ask you to do that today. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would evaluate our lives, evaluate our hearts. Lord, we seek by our gratitude to glorify you. Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing a song of response.